0: The reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. You find it on page 1235 of the Church Bible. That's page 1235. To the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me. Dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Let's pray as we begin. And just for a change, rather than me praying, why don't you pray? Why don't you pray that God will prepare your hearts for the word that's going to be preached? I'll just give you a little bit of time, and then we'll start. Oh, man. So now the first thing to say has to be that I'm deeply excited about this incredible news that we just had shared with us, that Rupert Charkham is going to be joining us. MJ and I, my wife and I, were part of his church in Cambridge a very long time ago, and he is a fantastic leader, a chap who holds really tightly to the word, a man who's got courage in the spirit, a man who knows how to grow and develop a church, and I think that we at St. Michael's will be in expert hands with Rupert, so I'm thrilled that he's going to be joining us from May. It's, it's so exciting. But right now, in this letter, we aren't in, in uh, Cambridge. In fact, we're in Sardis, which is in Turkey. And just for the, the context, just to remind you, uh, the Apostle John was imprisoned in the island of Patmos in Greece, just off the coast of Turkey. And John has visions uh, of the ascended Jesus. And these visions include him being told to write letters to the church in Turkey and Asia of the time. And the order of the letters follows that which the postman would walk along the road. So Ephesus is the closest to Patmos. And then he goes north from there. Uh, And then he curves around to the east. And now at this point, when he gets to Sardis, church number seven, he is going south already. Number five on his journey. And for those of you who enjoy taking notes and like a bit of structure, I've got a gem of a structure for you today. Uh, I've got three headings all beginning with the letter R. So I've got reputation, reality, and remedy. Reputation, reality, and remedy. And you'll be absolutely thrilled to know uh, that I've got three subheadings, also beginning with R, uh, which are subheadings of remedy, which you'll hear a little bit later. Now, as we've gone through the series of looking at uh, uh, Jesus' letters to these churches in Turkey and Asia... Um, People have been asking continually, if God was to write a letter uh, to our church in St. Michael's, or if he was to write a letter to the church in London, what would he say? And I think there's a lot to learn from all of the letters that uh, Jesus dictates to John. And so as we go through this letter, you might be asking yourself, how much of this applies to St. Michael's? How much of this applies to my own life? So let's start with reputation, our first hour. Uh, Sardis was situated at a point where a number of inland roads met. And so it was a place full of hustle and bustle, uh, a place of commerce and travelers. And if its presence was impressive, then its history was even more impressive, Sardis had been the home of King uh, Croesus and the capital of his kingdom of Lydia until it was sacked by uh, King Cyrus of Persia many years back. And so we find in Sardis this busyness of the present and this glory from the past. And in fact, if that is the city of Sardis, then we'll find something similar in the church of Sardis. In verse 1, the sender Jesus says, you have a reputation for being alive. You have a reputation for being alive. This is a church where there's no talk of sexual immorality like we find in other churches. Uh, there isn't any uh, eating of food sacrificed to idols in the temple. We don't hear anything about Balaam or the Nicolaitans, or Jezebel, as we find in some of the other letters. Sardis is a church of solid doctrine, a church where the scriptures are taught. And John Stott, the theologian, writes about this church. Visitors would exclaim with admiration, What a lively church you have in Sardis! What a lively church you have in Sardis! when they attended its services or watched its activities. Sardis was a church of programs, uh, a church which is probably growing in size, a church that didn't lack for helpers to lead different ministries, and a church that didn't lack for money either for its causes. This is a church that people would have wanted to be part of, and they might have even left their own church to be part of the church in Sardis. It's a church with a reputation for life. And you might think with this great reputation, there must have been something good going on underneath the surface. But you see, the Lord's character hasn't changed since those days when the prophet Samuel went to go and find a king. And he lined up all of those sons of Jesse, And he realized that even though people look at outward appearance, the Lord doesn't. It's the Lord who looks at the heart. And so even though they have this reputation for life, there's something very different going on underneath the surface. In fact, the reality, which is our second heading, is the opposite of the reputation. Back to verse 1. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The external was just that, a front. Internally, they were dead. You see, the city of Sardis is known for its lax moral standards, and it might well have been that the church in Sardis fell into similar licentiousness telling themselves the argument that Christ died for my sins. Therefore, why don't I carry on in the way that I want to carry? Because he died for it all, didn't he? In verse 4, we find a people who have soiled their clothes. Literally, a people who have pooed their pants. No one else seems to smell it, but Jesus smells it. No one else seems to see it, but Jesus sees their heart. And as someone with a little toddler who is used to pooed pants, um, I feel this quite keenly. There is a smell that he gets. Now, equally, it might be suggested that Sardis is the first example of nominal faith. Those who claim to be Christians and might even believe that they are, but their hearts haven't been given over to Jesus. They haven't yet counted the cost. They haven't yet been willing to sell everything to get that pearl of great price, sell everything to get the field which contained the treasure. They are people who enjoyed the community of church. They enjoyed being stimulated by the talks from the front, maybe even having a reputation for being a Christian. But for them, church was all about them and not about God. The church in Sardis would be worthy of the verse from Isaiah 29, which Jesus quotes to the Pharisees, where he says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. So there was a reputation in Sardis, which is without reality. When you scratch below the surface in Sardis, what you find is dead flesh. So if that's the reputation and the reality, our question is, what is the remedy? Well, our remedy we're going to divide up into three headings. The first one is going to be remember. The second is going to be repent. And the third one will be receive. You see, in verse 4, we find that there's a remnant of people who have not soiled their clothes. And no matter what happens in biblical history, there's always that remnant. There's Noah and his family before the flood. There's those people in Isaiah in, in Israel, who Isaiah speaks to in Isaiah chapter six, that remnant. There's Elisha and the prophets who haven't followed Baal. There's Simeon and Anna at Jesus' birth, and now in Sardis, there's a remnant of people who haven't soiled their clothes. And these are the people who call to and ask to wake up the rest. So we start off with remember. Jesus says, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Remember what you've heard and hold on fast to it. Now, memory can be absolutely brilliant when it comes to relationships. I can't sit through a wedding without remembering that time just over ten years ago in St. Michael the Belfry in York when my wife and I, gave ourselves to each other. And the same happens for the Christian, since marriage is just a temporary pointer, which points to something eternal, which is a relationship with Jesus. And Paul speaks about that in his letter to the Ephesians. You see, the eternal reality is this relationship that we have with Christ. And the church in Sardis, therefore, should remember what they heard. What they heard was the good news, the incredible news, that while they were still dead in their sins, the Father, in his love and his mercy, sent his Son into his own creation. He sent him to be born so that he could die a death on that cross. And on the cross, he took all those soiled clothes. He took those pooed pants, if you like, on himself. All of our mess, all of our excrement, all of the stuff that we're ashamed of and can't talk about here. He, Jesus took all that on himself. And what does he offer in exchange that we see in this passage? He, he offers these pure, clean, white clothes, his own clothes is what Jesus gives us when he died a death on our behalf. He died to take those soil clothes. He died to offer the exchange of clean clothes. So you can hear the ascended Jesus saying to Sardis, Remember what you heard. Hold fast to the gospel. Remember. Then they're called to repent. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about repentance uh, as a matter of different gestures, we said when we're living our lives for ourselves, uh, we might be orientated in this direction, and then we hear this incredibly good news that Christ has died for us; that we're no longer to live for ourselves; that the ego is no longer required to reign, and we do this 180-degree turn where we end up focusing on Jesus and living for him, our eyes set on him. Well, I think what we find inside us is sometimes what happens is after that reorientation, we slowly, over the years, do the shift back, back, back. And what we start off in God's strength and with our focus on him returns to a focus on us. And it might be that we're still reading the Bible. It might be um, that we're still coming to church, but in reality, we end up living for ourselves. So we might know all the right answers to the questions. We might have listened to, our, to the more sorry, to more than our fair share of sermons, but the Word of God is no longer cutting like it used to. Maybe we've hardened ourselves to it. And so. The church is called, if it's done that, if it's done that movement, is called to reorientate itself on Christ. So you can hear Jesus, the ascended Jesus, saying to Sardis, repent, reorient yourself on Christ. We, so we've remembered and we've repented. And thirdly, we receive There's one little word that I skipped out in verse 3 when I read read it. And it's vital for our understanding when it comes to Sardis. And that is the word received. Remember therefore what you have received. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost where the crowd was cut to the quick and Peter Replies: Repent and be baptized. Now, repenting, as we said, is that reorientation from ourselves to Christ. And baptism is this outward sign of an inward reality that we have died with Christ and we've been raised with him. So he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive, what do they receive? Yeah, that's right. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're to remember what they've heard in the gospel, and they're to remember what they received when they repented, and what they received when they repented was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And and we live our lives doing this. We live our lives remembering. We live our lives repenting. And we live our lives with the Holy Spirit who is in us. It's only by the Holy Spirit that we can call Jesus Lord. And every Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. When we come to faith, when we give our lives to Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit in us. And so, um, but at the same time we're called, uh, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us uh, in Ephesians, that we should... Continue to be filled by the Holy Spirit. So Michael Green, uh, theologian pastor, used to say, "It's a bit like this: this is us, this glass, and when we receive Christ for ourselves, the Holy Spirit gets poured in. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit as Christians. But is this glass full of water? No, it's not yet full." Of the Holy Spirit. So, following what Paul says to the Ephesians, we're called to continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you see what happens, I don't want to pour this all over my sermon, um, but you see what this happens when we get to a point of complete fullness. If we're at work, or we're at school, or we're at home, and someone bumps into the Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit, whoop! the Holy Spirit spills out. And this is an encouragement both for the believers, because we are called to encourage each other in the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doing his work in us will encourage each other. And it's a challenge for those who don't yet believe. They're saying, what is going on? What is this thing in this person which I don't have? So it's an encouragement for the believers and it's a challenge for those who don't yet believe. But the, ho- but the church inside us was no longer operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, John Stott writes in this verse, sound doctrine on its own cannot reclaim a church from death. Sound doctrine on its own cannot reclaim a church from death. Orthodoxy itself can sometimes be dead. They had received more than the gospel. They had received the Holy Spirit. And John Stott backs up his understanding of what they're missing being the Holy Spirit by taking us back to verse one. And for each of these churches that is the sender Jesus writes to, the introduction forms the context for what's going on in the church and what they're missing in that church. And Sardis's message comes from him who holds the seven spirits of God. And this is understood to refer to the different attributes of the one Holy Spirit. This letter to the church in Sardis is a bit like a parent walking into the bedroom of their teenager child, teenage child. And it's 11 in the morning, and this child still isn't awake. And the parents, this mum, comes up to her son and starts to shake him. Come on, you're missing the day, it's 11 o'clock. And the child's response is, come on mum, I've got a busy life. It's full of school and you know my grades, you know how well I'm doing. And then after school I've got rugby and I've got to stay fit to be ahead of the other flankers in the rugby team. And then there's my social life. That's what last night was full of. And added to that, it's all the social media, the Instagram posts. I've got to stay ahead of that as well, Mum. Plus, if you're really challenging me, I've read Matthew Walker's book, his Penguin book, on why we sleep. And therefore, I know that the circadian rhythms of teenagers change, and I need my sleep. So come on, just let me sleep. But the mum persists in shaking her child. And maybe the child gets irritated. But if that irritation wakes the child up from his sleep, then it's a good thing, because they're missing the day. And I bet that when this letter was read inside, it irritated some, because they were being shaken awake from their sleep. And so it has to be a good thing. Now... It's amazing that this point in history in Sardis is just decades after Jesus died. At this point in history, we're still sitting inside the Apostolic Age. The Apostle John isn't dead yet. And the canon of Scripture is still wide open. But yet, even at this stage, there are churches that are resisting the Holy Spirit, and trying to act on their own strength. And this shouldn't surprise us, because the Holy Spirit has always been resisted by the Lord's people. In Stephen's words to the scripture-touting Sanhedrin in Acts 7, just before he is stoned, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This is common to God's people that we resist the Holy Spirit. And that's because even though we acknowledge God, we want him on our terms, not his own terms. And our current culture in this 21st century isn't helping us at all. Our culture promotes autonomy. Autonomy has almost got a godlike status. We idolize independence and the control that we have of our lives. But as Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit blows where he wills. He is the one in charge, and not us. But we dislike this, and we'd rather settle for interacting with God in a way we can control him. We can evaluate him. We can even become good at church. But the Bible points us to hand over authority to God. A couple of weeks ago, I said that being a Christian means giving everything over to him. It means selling all we have to buy the field where we find the treasure. It means selling everything for that pearl of great price. And equally, I want to say that coming to Christ means having all of God. We can't choose the attributes of God we like and reject the attributes we dislike. We've got to have God for all he is. We can't accept God as love and not as holy. We can't accept God as a compassionate father and not accept him as our judge. God tells us who he is and God tells us who we are. He is our authority, and his word reveals him as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son ascended to heaven, but we remain here as his body, his fleshly body on earth, continuing the work that he started through the word that he spoke and through the demonstration of the Spirit's power, who is at work through him and is at work through us. We believe in a God who intervened once and intervenes still. And being open to the Holy Spirit isn't about style and it's not about songs. I'm not suggesting that. Actually, I don't think the Holy Spirit cares much for style, to be honest. He isn't limited by our style. He's only limited by us refusing to let him be God and do his work in us. Remember, he is God, not us. In fact, I think the Holy Spirit might be most interested in a church with a strong biblical foundation. It was through the scriptures that John Collins, when he was at All Souls, was challenged by the things of the Spirit, And ended up at HDB doing incredible things through the power of the Spirit. It was through the scriptures that David Watson, while he was at St. Andrews the Great in Cambridge, encountered the Holy Spirit. And did incredible things both up in York and around the country and was based in this church at St. Michael's when he was down in London. It was through the Spirit that Michael Green, while he was at the Minster Camps, uh, encountered uh, God, the Holy Spirit. I think that the Holy Spirit cares most about a biblical foundation. And the result of our openness to the Spirit is life life in God, life in all its fullness. So I think the two go together, and we see it, in fact. We see these two together in verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have heard, the Word, and what you have received, the Holy Spirit. And when we're remembering those two, the Word and the Spirit, going together, there we find life in God, life in all its fullness. The two together when the two are together, something really exciting happens. So as Michael Green writes, the period before the end. The period before the end. And we've got to remember that our hope is set on Christ and Christ's return. The period before the end is no barren period of waiting. It is a time of the Spirit. It is a time of evangelism. Now we as a church, St. Michael's, have a strong reputation. Just go out and ask anyone. We've got a strong reputation. But my question is, how does God see us as a church? I believe that we're a church that takes remembering the gospel very, very seriously. And that's good news. We've got a strong biblical foundation which we are holding to. I believe that we're a church that takes repentance very seriously. And you hear a call to repentance over and over again at St. Michael's. But are we a church who are willing to remember what we received? That's my question for us at St. Michael's. Are we willing to remember what we received? Are we willing to be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit? continually, and go out and operate in his power, and not our own. Shall we pray?